and a big welcome to the Elevator podcast. My name is Micah and I'm Selena and together we interview high achieving personalities to get to know their journey and expertise and the barriers they have faced so far to empower and inspire you to reach your full potential and elevate your life. Hi everyone, today we are delighted to be joined by Professor Gina Rippen, Emeritus Professor of Cognitive Neuroimaging at the Aston Brain Centre in Birmingham. Gina was the President of the British Association of Cognitive Neuroscience in 2015 and has also sat at the editorial board of the International Journal of Psychophysiology. Gina's research focuses on developmental disorder, including dyslexia and autism, as well as the misuse of neuroscience techniques leading to gender stereotyping. Her 2019 book, The Gender Brain, investigates the role of life experiences and biology in brain development, while challenging some of the biggest misconceptions in neuroscience. Gina does not believe that there is a single item type as a male brain or a female brain. Instead, that everybody is actually made up of a whole pattern of things, which is maybe due to the biology and maybe due to their different experiences in life. So without further ado, let's dive right into this episode. Amazing, we're live. So welcome, Gina. It is an absolute pleasure having you on our podcast today. Thank you very much for inviting me. <laughs> so before we dive in, would you give us a background about yourself, please? Okay. Uh, my name's Gina Rippon, obviously, and I'm a professor emeritus of cognitive neuroimaging at the Aston Brain Centre, which is in Aston University in Birmingham. And that's a, a brain imaging centre which has a sort of state-of-the-art imaging techniques. My sort of day job, as it were, is actually looking at developmental disorders, particularly autism. But overall, what I'm interested in is uh, how brains get to be different. So there's always been a kind of drive in the brain imaging field in, in brain research to kind of find the common factor so we can talk about the brain. But it's obviously clear from the amount of variability in, in human behaviour, um, assuming that's linked directly to our brains, that there must be enormous amount of variability in the brain as well. So it's really to find out where that comes from. And as we may cover later, a lot of my current work is saying, you know, what what we should be looking at the outside, what goes on outside the brain as much as what goes on inside the brain. So that that's not to deny the role of the brain in any of this, but just to say the world has much more of an impact on how the brain works than we ever realised. Amazing. Awesome. And so you published your book in 2019 called The Gendered Brain, The New Neuroscience That Shatters the Myth of the Female Brain. So could you maybe tell us how you became interested in sex differences. Right. Well, there's a variety of strands, but I guess with respect to the book, it was really when I was looking at, at sort of at doing work with, with autism and it became clear that brains are hugely different. And there's a, a great saying in the autism community that if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Uh, so I thought, well, I, I'll have a look at the sort of history of, of research into brain differences. And the most profound difference, which has been the most well-established for the longest time, and which appeared to have all sorts of research associated with it, 
and even more, which informed policy, you know, how people brought up their children and, and how they were educated and, and jobs people thought they could do, uh, was based on this firmly established difference. And it was when I started looking into the research, particularly the neuroscience research in this area, and even more particularly since the advent of brain imaging, which is, is my area of interest, um, it became clear that the this well-established certainty really shouldn't be that well-established because the research itself was based on some quite flawed premises which had been around in the brain research world since the sort of end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century. Um, and yet the flawed premise continued, even with the advent of, of wonderful new technology and, you know, revisiting the well-established to-do list, which proved that men and women were different. So the, the book is really reviewing, um, it talks about the history of, of that question and saying why we should revisit it, but also saying that new ways of thinking about the brain, which are obviously emerging all the time, um, but in particular in the last 30 or 40 years, should give us a different perspective on this question to the extent that we might even ask whether or not there should be that kind of question, is there a male brain or is there a female brain? Um, and, and so that's what I hope to convey in the book, but not within the, the realms of sort of academic research, but as a hopefully accessible book to the wider public. Thank you. That is highly interesting. Um, definitely. I'm really excited to dive more into this. If you don't mind giving a bit of an overview about how the brain is structured and because you talk about these amazing techniques or technologies, if you wouldn't mind just giving an overview about as well what is now being used to study the brain. Mm. Gosh, <laughs> how long have you got? Um, well, I think most of the work in this area is actually based on MRI, Uh, magnetic resonance imaging and functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI. And I think that's important to, to note because MRI is what's called, you know, exquisitely sensitive. It has amazing spatial resolution. So very good at telling us about structures in the brain, detailed structures in the brain and more and more developments, more and more Uh, developments of software, etc., is allowing us to, to really get a, a, a fantastic handle on those structures. Uh, and not just the different parts of the brain, but also the connections between them in terms of its sort of structural pathways. So I'm framing this in terms of talking to you about structures, because that's really where we started, you know, the idea right at the end of the 18th century that, you know, Brains, men and women had different brains, in particular, uh, the old size matters argument, men had bigger brains, and that's why they were superior. And that's not even in inverted commas, that was kind of overt statements by the scientists at the time. So that's important to bear in mind, because there are other techniques, uh, particularly magnetoencephalography, for example, MEG, which is the technique that I use, which is a sort of associate of EEG, the very first brain imaging technique, if you like, of all, which looked at the actual activity in the brain, what the brain was doing when it was solving problems or listening to language, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's quite an important difference. And it's important in that most of the work has come from looking at structures and not from looking at, at, at functions. And, and not to go into sort of too much technical detail, uh, it's actually clear that, I mean, although Brain imaging itself, in terms of greater accessibility, has been around since the 1990s. So we're looking at, you know, nearly 30 years of, of 30, nearly 40 years of research. We're really 
absolutely in foothills, the, the lowest foothills of understanding how the brain works, how we use our brains, etc. Um, and every new technology which comes along means that we come up with different answers to the same questions, but actually should mean that probably we need to be asking different questions as well. Um, so that's important. But I think the issue is what we're really talking about, if we're interested in the difference between male and female brains, is about behaviour, it's about ability, it's about you know, more fundamental things like temperament and, and personality, etc. And quite possibly we should be shifting away from focusing on structures of the brain and, and really understanding how the brain works thinking about brain function in milliseconds um, because all the kind of things that we're interested in happen in milliseconds or they're happening continuously and and I think that was another message uh, that, that should be made because a lot of people feel that if you look at you know, brain research there are thousands thousands of papers which describe sex differences in the brain um, and perhaps we'll get onto this later actually if you actually drill into that huge mountain of research you find there are lots of sex differences but in different papers there are different differences and if you start to actually look at the consistency you realize that there is no one consistent area in the brain which reliably in terms of size differentiates male and female brains once you've corrected for the fact that male brains are indeed about 10 percent bigger than female brains on average and that's another we probably ought to come back to but that's because males are on average about 10 percent bigger than than females and you know so their livers kidneys hearts etc are also bigger um and there's not a huge amount of different interest in you know the gendered kidney for example um <laughs> so um, th that's an issue that, that that we need to look at that's fascinating i feel like brain science is is such um like an amazing field because it's also really in its infancy at the moment. Like there's so much that we still need to discover, as you said, and the more you discover, the more you realize that you have a lot, a lot more to discover. Absolutely. That captures uh, daily frustrations very well, <laughs> in fact. Um, yeah. But it is an area which, which has huge implications because, you know, everybody in the world has got a brain. <laughs> we do know that there is one certainty in science. That although probably tomorrow somebody will come up with something, some kind of exception, probably not. But also with respect to this particular area, uh, everybody uh, has a agenda of some kind. And that's another whole area uh, to, to, to discuss. So in your field, how do you define gender? Very, very good question. Again, how long have you got? I firmly believe that when we're writing in this area, we need to define how we use those terms, because I think what you've touched on is the fact that people use those terms differently. For me, uh, the term sex refers to the kind of biological characteristics of individuals. Um, it's what Daphne Joel calls the 3G model, genes, genitals and gonads, <laughs> which differentiate um, males from females. Now, I'm, I'm hesitating there because unpacking the kind of binary implications of that statement is very important. Certainly, it always used to be assumed that you were either male or female. And there were some genetically caused, less well-defined uh, aspects of that, but they were defined as disorders 
the development, for example. Um, so it was assumed you were either male or female, you had all these you know, set characteristics, and that was true of, of everybody. And the term sex actually used to apply right the way across a chain of evidence. So if you had a chain of evidence saying whatever it is that determines male and female anatomy is different, also determines male and female brains are different, that also determines male and female behaviours are different, and that also determines their particular roles in society. And sex was applied to all of those. So, you know, way back in the sort of 70s, 80s, we were still talking about sex roles. So there was assumed that, you know, there was a direct link between your biology and your place in society. And then in the 1980s, the term gender was devised when associated with the sort of second wave of feminism, the idea that gender was actually something that's constructed, uh, socially constructed, culturally constructed. And the fact that male and females had different roles in society was a result of that construction. And the sort of extreme version of that argument was biology was irrelevant. And actually what looked like biologically determined differences, so-called essentialist argument, was really because cultures were imposing uh, differences on males and females who obligingly fell into those roles. So it looked like some kind of determined difference. And that's certainly something which in the last 30 years, with greater knowledge of of, of brains as as well as male and female anatomy, physiology, etc., we realised that in a way this was the kind of old, what I call old, nature versus nurture debate, you know, either the essentialist biology argument or the social construction argument. And now, uh, particularly with work, people like Anne Fausto-Sterling, for example, say these these areas are terribly entangled. You, you shouldn't think about either or. You must acknowledge the fact that biology will impact on how you're treated and that will impact on how, you know, where you fit in society, et cetera, and even our own selves, our self-identity, et cetera. But it's really saying that gender is something. I do believe that gender is something, is, is a social construct. And it's associated with a whole range of issues, um, not only gender roles, but also uh, gender identity, also with sexual orientation. Um, and, and it's interesting they still talk about sexual orientation as opposed to gender orientation. Uh, it's interesting that gender is now used in the same way that sex was. So people talk about gender gaps, for example, when they're really talking about male-female differences, gender reveal parties, which is another thing I can have a rant about. It's not a gender reveal party, it's a sex reveal party, but that might make you think of something different, I don't know. So I I, I think that the terminology within this area is very, is hugely important. I totally yeah. agree. It's it's not something I would have said like I am I thought about before, but now that you mentioned it out loud, yeah, definitely, um, it is it is really important. Um, and thanks for all these explanations. Yeah, I, I would just add that it's interesting that I think a couple of years ago now there was an argument about I think it was the GCSE biology exam when the question was how do chromosomes determine gender, and there was a complaint about that because you know chromosomes don't determine gender; they determine sex. But the argument with the, the question stood because the argument of the exam board was that the children had been taught. <laughs> so they were going to parrot back what they were told. But they 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 thought male, female meant gender. So that I, I think that's quite an interesting insight into how that term has been sort of hijacked. And sometimes even in neuroscience research, you hear people talking about gender differences 
but actually when you look at the, uh, the the cohorts and how they analyze their data they're analyzing it in terms of males and females that's really interesting and it's really shocking as well but then it, it comes back to the fact as you were saying that there's this nature versus nurture thing where actually gender is a product of you know society and the way like children are, are taught are just based on yeah like societal values not the actual biological you know explanations mm. behind or so that's yeah, although although they use uh, they rationalize uh, they validate that differential rearing of children or different toys even you know different clothes etc yeah. because there is this you know boys will be boys mantra which means it's as i say it's what's called the essentialist argument where uh, there is a belief that there is sort of profound unidirectional link between your biology and you know where you end up and end up in society etc and how society treats you and what you expect of yourself as well as what society expects of you so i had another question because you also talked a bit about the history and one thing actually Celine and i were both read about was i mean the white matter versus gray matter in the brain and how it used to be that there's a effect on sex differences. So uh, can you maybe tell us a bit about this and yeah, where you stand with this? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's one of those, there's, it's an area with a nice list of myths about well-known differences between males and females. And one of the areas is that the grey matter in the, in the brain, which as you know, uh, reflects the sort of nerve cell bodies of the brain, Uh, has a particular kind of volume um, and that's if you you know if you slice through the brain you get this sort of cauliflower like type appearance where you get gray matter particularly in the cortex and then you get the pathways uh, which are the connections between groups of brain, brain cells where the, the, the axons have actually been have a, a myelin layer a fatty layer a white sheath which helps with the communication and gives this white appearance so It's all. It, this is also an area which is characterized a lot by metaphor. So there was always the, the grey matter of the brain, which was you know the part of the brain which did the work, and the white matter of the brain, which was the part of the brain which did all the communication kind of thing. And that sometimes got linked a bit to being male or being female, and the idea that females are much more better, much better at communicating, for example. And so, you know, there was an intense interest in looking at the great, the ratio of grey to white matter. And the idea was that you could prove male-female differences by suggesting that males had a, a greater amount of white, a grey matter and females had a greater amount of white matter. And I think that's one of those myths which has sort of stuck in, in human consciousness. And there's even sort of re neuroscience research looking You know, there's looking at IQ, grey-white matter ratios and correlation um, with IQ and saying that, you know, men had the, the greater amount of grey matter that men had correlated positively with, with IQ, which is certainly a myth. But I think I, I should also make the point, should perhaps have made earlier, that, of course, all of these, we're talking about average differences And that's really important. And in fact, it's, it's, it's a fact which I try and put in early on when I'm giving talks, because I say to people, you know, a lot of you will bring this belief with you today that there are male and female differences and research has found. And I said that even if you look at research, every single research paper, you will see that the differences between the average averages of male 
brain characteristics as well as behavioral characteristics in female brain characteristics and behavioral characteristics. Average differences are very tiny. The variability within each group, which I think is also true of, of aspects of pulmonary hypertension, is, 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 is great. And actually, it'd probably be much more interesting to look at the sources of that variability than looking at the tiny different average differences between them. And so that's that's true of, of, of these kind of myths, that even if you suspended all belief and had a look at the data on the grey white matter story, you'd see that these, these are based on tiny differences. And the likelihood that differences that tiny are going to explain the huge amount of variability when we when we come to talk about gender gaps, um, and I mean gen- use the term gender advisedly, it, it will will just not carry the weight of explanation that it's been given. That is that is really interesting. I think it's a really really important point as well because that's something that's been used in any kind of any field of research. You know, that sort of scientists trying to find because there's their bias towards something that they want to show they will find this difference that is maybe not even significant, but just the fact that they're scientists and they have this name and they can publish, people are just going to, you know, sort of believe in these differences and they, that's just the whole focus of the paper. Mm. I mean, and that's absolutely not to say that there aren't some differences. Um, you know, people like me and Cordelia Fine have been, you know, identified as sex difference deniers, you know, a bit like climate change deniers, <laughs> kind of deluded political correctness or something. Yes, there are differences and we need to know about them because, for example, there are much higher rates of depression in, in women than men, much higher rates of brain based disease uh, like Parkinson's disease in men than women. Uh, or Alzheimer's in women than men. So, so we we do need we can't dismiss the biology. We can't say, well, it's obviously not important, even if it's small. But what we need to know is is you know where those differences came from, what else they're related to, uh, the fact that brain structures, in fact, having sort of said they're not fully informative, can be uh, changed by different experiences. Um, you know, the, the taxi driver studies where people who'd learned the knowledge in London, you know, hugely complicated visuospatial task, the parts of their brain associated with visuospatial processing became much larger once, that, while, you know, while they're acquiring and once they'd acquired the knowledge. Um, and interestingly, those differences or those changes disappeared once they retired. Um, so that was a nice series of studies based at, at UCL, in fact, um, which showed that our brains are actually plastic throughout our lives. Because the other aspect of the male-female brain story was that there was some kind of fairly early developmental endpoint. You know, once the brain had reached full size, that was it. And once it became clear that that wasn't true, then that was another area where you could say, so we need to understand what experiences people have had. You know, if there are differences between male and female brains, on average, however small, would it just have come from the fact that they're male or female? Or would it have come from the fact that, you know, certainly till the last 50 years, male and female had different amounts of education, certainly still are in different occupations and, and the nature of those occupations will change the brain. So, again, it's saying, yes, there are differences, but where do they come from? Uh, and that's that's really important. Um, 
Definitely. I think also what I always find uh, difficult is that, I mean, the, the publications we read, we see they are the ones who actually show a difference, even though it's a small difference. But then all these like research um, like people have, which don't show any difference, obviously is not seen. So I feel like sometimes that's really the tricky yeah. part is the relations towards each other. That, that's right. I mean, I call that the iceberg problem. I say, you know, you, you, you've got a, what looks like a huge body of literature proving that there are sex differences. And then I say, if you actually drill into it, there's not a lack of consistency. But what you don't see is the number of studies which don't report sex differences because they haven't been published, you know, or they haven't been sent for publication. But even within, particularly because of how brain imaging is, researchers will be making thousands of comparisons. And almost invariably, probably more than 90% of those comparisons are not statistically significant. So you could say, actually, you ought to take that into account as well, because if you're only going to focus on the 140 differences you found, which feels like quite a lot, but ignore the thousands you didn't, then you're giving a misleading impression. And the question that researchers are always asking, even right from the beginning, one of the first brain imaging studies was looking at differences between males and females in language processing. It was going right back to the 18th, 19th century, where it wasn't a question that there was a difference between male and female brains. It was a given that there was a difference. And so this kind of hunt the difference agenda is still informing the questions that scientists are asking without stopping and saying, actually, is this an interesting question? Is it a valid question? Would we be better interrogating these data in a different way? Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really, really crucial point to make. But you touched on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and the actual differences that we see, you know, in prevalence and incidence between both men and women. Do you have any idea as to how, like, why there is this difference? I think Alzheimer's, for Alzheimer's disease, it's been suggested that because women have a more active immune system, mm. um, yep. that may lead to, you know, the immune system attacking the, the neurons in the brain. Yep. Absolutely. Um, I mean, short answer is we don't know. It, just to the, to the Alzheimer's issue is, is more complicated. The Parkinson's issue, interestingly, the suggestion was quite possibly that the differences in incidence between males and females was to do with the different exposure to occupational hazards in males, you know, depending on, on their exposure to environmental toxins, etc., or in indulging in sports, which are more likely to result in head injury, etc. So that was quite an interesting idea that this looked like a male-female, you know, physical difference, but actually there could be external explanations as well. The Alzheimer's one is slightly more different, difficult in that we really don't know what causes Alzheimer's. I mean, it's it's a very complicated area and. So, you know, as I say, the answer, we don't know. It could be something to do with the, with the loss of, of, of grey matter tissue in the hippocampus in, in um, women seems to be greater as they age. And maybe that relates to Alzheimer's. Maybe there are some kind of protect, cognitive protective factors which are differentially available to males and females. So we don't know. I mean, it, it used to be thought, well, it's just because women live longer so they get <laughs> there's more of them getting diseases of old age but I don't think that's you know uh, now seen as well not the only explanation so I think the immune system story is going to be very interesting because that could also relate to some of the mental health problems suggestion that uh, depression is associated 
with uh, inflammation and response to stress, etc. It's really interesting. I mean, how yeah, everything interconnects with each other. I mean, are there already any approaches for this? Because I mean, I I personally imagine it's being very difficult um, to connect all these different um, impacts with each other to then find out the reasons for this. Or are there already any approaches to there or any wishes for the future? It is actually very diff difficult. I mean, I think in various areas, there are approaches which take more than sort of single factors into account. The whole area of embodied cognition, for example, which is quite interesting um, and also is, is another A factor in this area and um, males and females bodies are different and in particular males are bigger taller stronger etc and your brain doesn't float around in the world in a vacuum it's in a body and different societies um, use those bodies differently um, you know higher rates of, of aggression is always quoted as uh, you know proof of biological differences because universally across cultures and across time almost not even on average, <laughs> men have been more aggressive or been associated with, with greater levels of aggression than women. And this could be related to the physical factors. And that relates, in fact, to ongoing disputes at the moment about transgender athletes, for example, and a very, a very fraught area. But, you know, it is it is the case that, that your brain is in a body and that body will give you a different relationship with the world and and also how you think how you approach the world you know your perspective will be different i think there's some work with um pharmacology um which is interesting so i um, mean you know, right down at the cellular level within the brain you know having a look at how drugs affect males and females differently and how that might impact on you know further up the chain because brain imaging of course is It's actually, I mean, I think it's wonderful, but it's pretty crude because you're actually, you know, trying to work out what the brain looks like by you know, looking from the outside. So marrying those two together, I think, will be very important. Gene expression within the brain, I think, is another area uh, which which will be important. I think we're still in our silos a bit, <laughs> mainly because we we're not confident enough in what we can say about our own area um, to say right this is how it is in the brain and somebody else will say this is how it is in in you know pharmacokinetics or something um, but I think we're getting there which 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 is more hopeful that we're not going to be stuck in these myths <laughs> yeah definitely and we actually had um, Dr Jill Jackson who works on Alzheimer's as well at Imperial College and she uses I mean her group uses like a multi-omics approach to understanding Alzheimer's which I think links pretty well to what you just said that we really need to take into account all the aspects of the body um, you know as a whole to understand any kind of disease or any kind of pathological you know patterns that happen in the body so yeah I think this is definitely the way science is going to go in the future but to go back to what you were saying before um, about neuroplasticity I think this is a word, like a really trendy word um, at the moment as well. So if you can maybe explain to the listeners what it is and also how society um, can affect brain development based on this um, neuroplasticity. Yeah. The idea was that our brains definitely weren't plastic. They were fixed. Um, you almost got the brain you were born with. And it got bigger. It could be exposed to different experiences. But you know, the skills that you acquired as you grew from a baby to an adult emerged in the same order 
at about the same ages across all cultures and 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 down the ages except there was the assumption that the brain was almost vacuum packed nothing much changed it uh, and and therefore you know even to the extent of, of rehabilitation so that if you suffered brain injury there was a kind of sort of fairly fundamental managing approach uh, manage the, the deficit rather than overcome the deficit because it was assumed that you know you, the brain was damaged and nerve cells didn't regenerate and therefore you know the damage was permanent but we now know that the brain we also know that the brain actually does generate new nerve cells throughout uh, time which will be really interesting to resolving some of the you know um, brain-based disorders like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's etc and stem cells that might be able to be manipulated so there's that kind of physical plasticity which is a new idea but there's also an idea that if you have different experiences like learning to drive a taxi or, or do the knowledge or, or or learn to juggle that's another skill uh, which neuroscientists have decided was a good way of demonstrating neuroplasticity there's something most people can't do but you could learn to do um, play tetris video games are actually I do give talks in schools and the teachers get a bit queasy when I say, you know, video games are fantastic for spatial training, um, you know, children cheering away. So it, we now know that the brain will change according to the experiences we have. And that has profound implications, obviously, for education um, and for continuing education, because we now know these changes will occur throughout life. There is certainly a point when we get older that the brain does become less plastic and Sometimes it's harder to maintain its plasticity, but it's clear that we can do that. And that, again, is another important finding. You know, the assumption, like Shakespeare's Seven Ages of Man, there was a kind of inevitability that once you got to a certain age, you know, you were going to become incompetent and um, forgetful, etc. Fortunately, we now know that that's not that necessarily that inevitable, although we can delay it a bit. So that that's that's important again in terms of understanding any certainties based on our understanding of the brain should shift now we we realize that the brain is also quite plastic and throughout our lives and as a result of, of external influences as well as internal. Thank you for this explanation. That is uh, really interesting to know. So I had a, another question, um, another disease-related question, actually, because you said that your main work is also on autism mm -hmm. and that when you look at one autism brain, it's just one brain, and then you look at the next one. So I have to say that's true of all brains, actually, to be honest. <laughs> I can, Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> but it's very interesting also with this aspect. So would you mind explaining to us, because obviously we don't have brain background, what the differences is, what you would expect? Uh, yeah, well, if I if I absolutely had the answer to that, I would be thrilled. And, you know, <laughs> again, we're in the foothills. I think one of the things we're looking at is, that, again, for a long time, because it was clear that there were atypical types of behaviour. I mean, autism is actually one of the most complicated areas to study because there's a huge spectrum of behaviours from, you know, the, the kind of cinematic representation of amazing skills at one end to the really profoundly impaired uh, individuals who are um, non-verbal um, will be institutionalised all their lives at the other end. So you're you're actually trying to look at the full gamut of human behaviour, including the exceptions, <laughs> uh, and find an answer. And a lot of people were looking at, at structures. It was clear it's genetic. So they were trying to find out, you know, are there different, you know, what is it that's being inherited 
for example. So they were looking at the brain because that was the basis. So what we're now looking at is what we call about how the brain, this is another P as well as plasticity, the brain is actually acts like a predictive texture. So our brain isn't just receiving information and responding to it. It's also generating um, predictions. So our brain is actually quite future focused, which of course we don't we don't experience that. You know, we assume, you know, we, we see a light and, you know, a, a stimulus and immediately know what the sound is or the sight is, etc. But that's because our, our brain has generated algorithms uh, based on past experience. It's a self-organizing system to go into AI type language. And so it says, you know, don't spend all your time processing every bit of new information. This is what this means. And you move on and you do. And most of the time the brain is right, fortunately for us. But there are occasions when, you know, like you see things that aren't there. Visual illusions is a nice kind of experimental way of, of, of saying that the brain is predicted that uh, this person is bigger than the other because of the kind of environment they're standing in, et cetera. And it's actually wrong. But with the autistic brain, what we're finding is that the kind of nice chain of feed forward and feedback that you do get with a, a, a stimulus becoming predictable isn't so evident in the autistic brain. So it's almost as though the world is a terrifying place because there's no rules being generated. And so every time you see something it's it's a whole new experience and that's possibly partly behind this sort of very repetitive behaviors that are characteristic of the disorder and um, because it in a way if everything is the same at least it's you're safe <laughs> as it were but this also generalize generalizes or we've we've hypothesized that it generalizes to to more abstract rules not just you know this sound or that sight or that word or that facial expression, which is actually quite important, but also social rules, which, you know, again, the, the facial expression comes in there. And another characteristic of the autistic individual is their difficulty with social relationships, something that most of us do absolutely without thinking from the moment of birth, actually, because babies are really socialising individuals right from the moment of birth and very, very aware of social rules which is another new thing that neuroscience has, has developed, understood in the last 20 years or so. So if you don't have any of that and you're plunged into a world, you know, it's a bit like suddenly waking up in a, a completely different country, no idea what the rules of behaviour are, don't speak the language, look around the place, see if you can generate some kind of understanding and you can't, you know, and, and it is terrifying. And I think that's that's our model of, of, of autistic behaviour. Yeah, I think it's, it's so interesting how you went into the details of, you know, what autism actually implies. Yeah. An interesting case study in terms of it's always been thought of as a male disorder because, mm -hmm. you know, much higher, much higher inverted commas ratio of males to females. But it's now becoming clear that this is almost like the kind of sex differences in the brain argument. It's because people expected, you know, it, there are females who are diagnosed much, much later, you know, well into their, you know, third, fourth decade as being on the spectrum, having been misdiagnosed throughout their lives, despite behaviour difficulties. And that's because the research is focused on this is a male problem. So, you know, the, the spotlight is on males and the diagnostic criteria are couched in terms of child differences, if, if you're looking at behavioural differences in children or even in adults self-assessment 
there is a belief of what is normal for boys and what is normal for girls. And and you know, the number of times I've talked to female females on the spectrum who say, you know, for years they were told you can't be autistic because you maintain eye contact and everybody knows that you know autism is about eye contact. You can't be autistic because you're female. Um, so it's an interesting case study in how bias within any kind of research question can come up with the wrong answers. One comment that I had with autism and like females, I think there was this, I read this about eating disorders and autism and how actually women present a lot more eating disorders than men. But this may also be sort of an alarming sign eating disorders could also be a form of autism basically mm. in female and that was sort of hidden be, be yes I mean yeah. I, I think that's that's a sort of newish and, and still quite controversial area I mean that instances of autism in of eating disorders in autistic females I should present slightly differently from eating disorders in non-autistic females and very often it's one particular incident I can think of where uh, a female presented with an eating disorder, but it turned out she'd become obsessed with calorie counting. So it wasn't that she was trying to lose weight. She just had somehow set herself a target, which was very low. And in the very characteristic autistic repetitive behaviour, she that's how she ate. <laughs> and there was also a whole other issues about different colours, you know, different coloured foods and, and stuff like that. So it's an interesting area, but it's also an area where autism in girls very often doesn't become or disordered behaviour in girls doesn't become evident until very often puberty or the transition from primary school to secondary school. And the suggestion is that up to that time, females have somehow been able to what they call camouflage or fly beneath the radar because they've got sufficient awareness of social rules. It's not automatic to them. And they will later on in life say, I realise that to be popular or to be friends with people you had to do this that and the other it wasn't automatic they, they learned it and in a sort of small environment in you know primary school that worked but once you went to a bigger school wider ranges of behavior wider ages it all fell apart and sometimes it's expressed itself in eating disorders because that's exactly the same age as eating disorders so a complicated area but um, very relevant So we have our signature question, which we ask all our um, guests, which is, if you can tell us your favorite quote or word, that'd be great. <laughs> quote. Oh, gosh, the quote I use a lot is from Reshma Sujani, who founded Girls Who Code. Uh, she was concerned about the underrepresentation of women in science, which is a passion of mine. And she said, we raise our boys to be brave and our girls to be perfect. And I think that kind of sums up a huge amount of what I'm interested in. So I guess that's, I, I claim that as my favourite quote. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I love this quote as well. Yeah, amazing. I think, oh yeah, another one from Lewis Carroll. I can't go back to yesterday because I was a different person then. I think that's, um, I like this. That, that's yeah, nice with like respect that. to brain plasticity. Yeah, definitely. Sad, my points come back to that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. Amazing. Thank you so much, Gina. Okay. Last point, if you could okay. tell us where our um, listeners could, could learn a bit more. So about um, about you or your, your research, uh, do you have any, any web page? Buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, go and buy the book. <laughs> okay, go and buy the book. Okay, yeah, this, yeah, go and buy the book. No, no, um, I've got a, a website, which is ginarippon, all one word, dot com. And Aston University 
I you can get me on my Aston University website, which is more about my kind of academic stuff. But the other one is is more personal. So other things that I do. Amazing. Thank oh, you. <laughs> thank you so much, Gina. Right. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. <laughs> and hope to see you in real time at some point. Okay. That would be lovely. Right. That would okay. be very nice. Bye. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Gina as much as we did and learned a bit more about the differences between sex and gender, why video games are good for you, as well as the history of the gendered brain and the myth around it. You will find links to Gina's website and other useful resources mentioned here in the show notes. And as always, we would really appreciate it if you could rate and subscribe to this podcast, as well as share it around you so that we can reach and empower more people to elevate their lives. See you next week for our last episode of the season.